there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. invaded Algeria to kick the month off. Meanwhile, in Japan, the very first Mario Brothers game was released. Friday Night Videos made its premiere on NBC, and as if in response, there were light flashes recorded on Jupiter's moon, Io. Does that seem like a random assortment of facts? Well, that's not half as random as the films we're about to discuss in July of 1983. Hi, everybody. I'm Drew McQueenie, and welcome to 80s All Over. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Scott Weinberg. Hi, everybody. I'm Scott Weinberg, and I'm joined by my co-host, Sorry, I was just mimicking you. After all these episodes, I think it's fair that we pay a little bit of credit to the person who writes all your uh, your intro pieces that include all the topical news bits. Uh, David Mamet <laughs> writes those for us. And kudos, man. Yeah, very like, true. No, uh, and before we begin this wonderful episode full of crazy stuff from July of 1983... The great Margot Kidder has passed away at the age of 69, and uh, just Drew and I wanted to spend just a few minutes talking about how much we loved her. What, what do you love most about Margot Kidder's Lois Lane? Well, as Lois Lane, I, the thing I like is that what made her Lois Lane interesting was the sense that she really was what a reporter in 1979 might look like in New York as opposed to sort of a 40s homage or anything. She modernized that movie as much as any other element of it, I think, and grounded it and made it very real. Growing up in love with Superman and Superman 2, she very often spars with him verbally, and she never seems like his damsel or his female sidekick. She's a very cool reporter, very tough. I love her in those movies. I love her in Brian De Palma's Sisters. She's terrific in Sisters. And if you read Easy Riders and Raging Bulls, you get a sense of kind of how she fit into that whole 70s scene. And and she and her roommate, Jennifer Salt, they were just at that flashpoint of all the filmmakers that we're interested in that we love. And she was part of that that moment. You know, there's a lot of people who I think contributed to the energy and just sort of the scene that don't necessarily get credit. And I think one of the great things that book does is kind of show how it was that alchemy of all those people in that place at that time. And I think they all contributed. And I, I really do think Margot Kidder will be missed by a lot of people. And she has she has generations of fans. Uh, rest in peace, Margot Kidder. And we dedicate this episode to your memory.
And speaking of love, Drew, there's a segue. Uh, we love our Patreon supporters. We love them so much. It's preposterous. And you guys not only love the bonus content that we've been able to create for you, and we're really excited about how diverse it is. The fact that we get to try a lot of different things, and you guys seem very excited by the different things we're trying. But beyond that, it's also the fact that you make it possible for us to continue to do the show. It's a lot of time, and it's a lot of effort, and there's a lot of legwork involved in, in not only tracking things down, but in just getting to the place where we can sit down to have these conversations. So we appreciate all the support you guys have shown. That includes those of you who aren't contributing financially, but are carrying the word and playing the episodes for people and talking about it on Twitter and Facebook and any place you can talk about it, that helps too. Thank you. Let's move on to July of 1983. Drew. Well, first, first, Scott. Say oops upside your head. Say oops upside your head. Say we pulled the boner. Um, oh, wait. Did I say that somebody was dead who isn't? No, no, that's not I the one. I think I did we, that about Dan Hedaya, and I apologize again. I think somebody pointed out that that might be the third or fourth time we've killed Dan Hadai on the show, too. There is something about him that insists on the fact that, no, he passed away at some point. But we love the fact that he's still here and still acting. No, the boner we pulled this week was we skipped the whole movie. It's an easy movie to skip because it barely got released. And that seems to be a theme running through 1983. There's a lot of these movies that had one release in one market. And one of those was a piece of Nelvana animation called Rock. And rule. Good band, hot music, the beauty, songs by Deborah Harry, the beast, songs by Lou Reed and Iggy Pop, the beat, songs by Cheap Trick and Earth, Wind and Fire. Nelvana Animation was a Canadian company that did a lot of TV specials. Do you remember the one they did, Romeo and Julie 8, the two robots? The one that kind of led to this movie was The Devil and Daniel Mouse. There are elements of that in this film, and I think it was a case where that special did so well that a distributor approached them and asked them if they would do a sort of science fiction, larger scale take on that. So what they ended up with is frankly nonsense. And it's nonsense with this amazing lineup of soundtrack artists and with some great voice actors and genuinely with some animation that's impressive to look at, but makes no goddamn sense yeah, at all. That, and it feels almost like you had mentioned in our last episode that Miracle Mile almost was a Twilight Zone film. This feels like it was almost a segment from Heavy Metal. What I love about Nelvana is, and this is, I'm going to get real animation nerdy for just a moment here. I get crazy about TV animation versus feature animation because it's always done on halves. It's done on either twos or threes, which means that for every three drawings, you're only doing one. Nelvana frequently worked on ones, which is what features are, where for every frame of the film, you have a new drawing. And the result is something that feels very fluid and alive and where the character work is forefront. Nelvana, I think, was maybe the best of the TV animation company. I love their work. I really think it's gorgeous stuff. But they just jumped into features to jump into features. They did, and this happened so often, they didn't have a script yet. They didn't know what they were, so they just, let's make a film, and then you end up with this weird Frankenstein thing of chosen ones and prophecy and rock and roll, and 
Paul Lamatt is in this. Debbie Harry does one of the singing voices. Lou Reed does a singing voice. There's original music by these people. There's a lot of cheap trick. Earth, Wind, and Fire. Catherine O'Hara's in it. Maurice LaMarche. I think it's an interesting relic for uh, animation buffs, surely. But as you said... uh, It's definitely... It's a curio more than anything. And I know a lot of people that used to get this confused with uh, Fire and Ice because they came came out right around the same time. They were advertised right around the same time. And they both kind of had the same amount of uh, play at theaters, which was negligible. And they both look like Frank Frazetta vans. The posters for both of them are very, very similar. I'm glad we went back to, to catch up with it. If you are an animation nerd, find it. But uh, before we move on, I remember digging Fire and Ice, and I'm looking forward to rediscovering that unholy mat. It's Bakshi working from Frank Frazetta, and that's fun art. All right. Now we move through to our very first and probably last film with the word puberty in the title. We're going to go to Australia for a little film called Puberty Blues. On Cronulla Beach, there are two great natural resources. The waves... And the curves. A story of discovery, fun, and freedom in the universal language of growing up. This was the last thing I watched before we recorded. Actually, I'm really glad that I was forced to watch that I caught up with this movie. It's early, early, early Bruce Beresford. This is one of the first films that got a, like a major international release from him. It came right on the heels of his American studio breakthrough, Tender Mercies. I think it's a charming little movie. I, I like the young cast. I like the vibe of it. And it's one of those films about 10 minutes in, I realized, yeah, I'm going to just enjoy generally this world. I like the way it shot Don McAlpine, one of the biggest cinematographers in the business, uh, shot this thing. And it's really kind of got a great, loose, casual eye to it. It is a very simple, straightforward coming-of-age story about two 16-year-old girls who uh, are discovering the various adult ways of life, the good things and bad things. And it's very unassuming. It's very frank about its... uh, simplistic nature and not even simplistic but straightforward it's just uh, the girls are very likable even when they're not they're still worthy of some empathy and interest i I thought this was an interesting movie i i hate to say it because you know it's not really made for me but i I don't think it's a a classic or anything that i'd remember a couple years from now but like you said i'm glad our show kind of made me dig this one up because i wouldn't have express much interest in this kind of thing normally. There's a novel that was very popular with Australian teens, and I guess the novel is more graphic and more frank, and it's kind of like the difference between the Fast Times at Ridgemont High book by Cameron Crowe and the film, where even though the film still feels like it's got some edge and some grit, the book, I guess, went further. But yeah, it's a charming little movie. I'm surprised I never saw it back then. I I guess it just never ended up on video where I was, but... There were dozens of smaller movies that came out in Australia that came and went that we, you and I, probably have never even heard of. Uh, But like this and Starstruck, they kind of just remain uh, on a sea level over the years because they're just better than many of their peers. Uh, The director of Starstruck was approached about making this film and passed on it. And I wonder what she would have done with the material. Like, I think she might have been a great fit for this. But it's nice for Beresford, whose work I'm eh, so-so on. I think this is a really lovely little movie of his. You know, you, you move from a movie about sort of uh, the coming of age of young women in Australia to what is meant to be, I think, a young female empowerment film about the first girl playing professional baseball called Blue Skies Again. The Devils are a major league team with a minor difference. A second baseman whose name is Paula. Paula! 
Paula, a little lady with a major swing, major drive, major pride, and major problems. So are the big boys play. Blue skies again. I really think you're going to like this team. Yeah, uh, this is a sleeping pill. I mean... Wow. It's got an interesting cast. I love Kenneth McMillan, uh, Mimi Rogers, and the woodblock, otherwise known as Harry Hamlin. So, <laughs> but it's not well written. It's not particularly well shot. It doesn't feel like a theatrical release to me. This feels like something that was shot for TV that they bumped up. It's mild-mannered and barely has any momentum as it kind of lurches from scene to scene. And the young woman who's the lead, Robin Bardo, just dull, just really not an interesting central character. It feels like an after-school special that, like, forgot the conflict. Your buddy, Kenneth McMillan, who we both love, is working overtime to make something happen in this thing. Yeah, he earns his check on this. And it feels like what hath breaking away wrought. That's what this feels like. Even if you are really into the concept, I can't imagine that there's anybody that needs to dig up Blue Skies ever again. Oh, snap. You worked your dig into the title. Boom. Look at that. Boom. You are a professional critic. (laughs) All right, Drew. Now we're going to dig into a movie that it's mega obscure, but it also has a host of fascinating information, even though it's terrible. What title should I use, Drew? I don't know. Just go for it, man. All right. let's, Let's start with Spaceship. Space Freaks, welcome to the Spaceship Vertigo, whose five-year mission is to seek out new life, have it baptized, teach it table manners, and find a creature who doesn't have to phone home. If you really want to get your rockets off, I have to go to the bathroom, but I don't know if I'm a boy or a girl. Take a ride on the only rocket-ripping spaceship in the universe. So yummy. Your face. In my tummy. <laughs> this creature means no harm. Oh! Remember, in Spaceship, everyone can hear you scream. Spaceship, void were prohibited. See it, or we'll have to make a sequel. Yeah. It is also in various areas known as Naked Space and or The Creature Wasn't Nice. I've got to imagine Naked Space was a very, very, very late retitle after the Naked Gun movies, because I actually tracked down for this show and read Bruce Kimmel's autobiography. Okay, now for those who don't know, Bruce Kimmel is a guy who made, with Cindy Williams, who's also in this film, he made something called The First Nudie Musical that had some notoriety. I don't, I've never seen it. I do remember the VHS case. And then clearly on the success of Airplane, this gentleman tapped Leslie Nielsen to do what I, I believe is his his second uh, spoof moment. Now, Drew, explain to us the madness that is this movie. Kimmel made the first Nudie musical, which he signed a really shitty deal on. And that movie made a ton of money, not a penny for him. And so he was determined on the second film, whatever it was, he was going to like be more in charge and he was going to really have some control over it, which makes it kind of heartbreaking that the second film that he got greenlit was The Creature Wasn't Nice. And he designed it as both a love letter to the 50s sort of sci-fi movies and to the more modern horror sci-fi stuff that was being made after Alien. So he wanted to do a little bit of both. But this guy's first love is musical theater. So the whole thing was designed as a musical. He 
took a long time putting his cast together. Patrick McNee was first, Garrett Graham, Cindy Williams. It all hinged on Cindy Williams, actually, for the financing because she had made so much money in the first nudie musical. So, And because of Laverne and Shirley, she was considered the star here. So he finally got her to say yes. Leslie Nielsen was, I think, the last person cast and was not his first choice. Like, he went through a lot of people before he got to him. And then they shot this film. And, you know, I don't believe there was ever probably a very good version of this movie. But the first film that he cut was called The Creature Wasn't Nice. That was put out. It was actually released in Los Angeles and New York for a week. It got reviewed by Variety, got reviewed by Hollywood Reporter, got reviewed by the New York Times. They thought it was okay. Like, they thought it was fine. They said, you know, limp parts, funny stuff, doesn't work in places. But overall, eh, it's okay. And then the producer lost their mind and decided they were pulling the film from release. And they spent about eight months shooting new material, recutting the film radically. And then they put out Spaceship. Spaceship is what you and I watched, and reading the book about Creature Wasn't Nice and reading what the differences are, it really feels like they threw it in a blender. Stuff from the beginning of the film is in the middle of the film. Whole subplots have been moved around and broken in half, so it doesn't make any sense. I even remember seeing it as, as what, probably 12, 13, 14 years old and thinking, I didn't like it, and I liked everything back then. But I couldn't have articulated to you that, that, that it didn't make any sense, and a lot of the gags were... Uh, if they, you have a movie that makes Garrett Graham not funny, you're doing something wrong. One of the things that I'm struck by watching Spaceship is how fucking ugly it is. The thing is printed at as bright a stop as possible, so every corner of every set is illuminated brightly. If you stumbled across this one night on Netflix or the Encore channel and you'd never heard of it, Spaceship, 1983, I know some of these people. That's that's Shirley from Laverne and Shirley. That's the guy from Used Cars. Oh, my God, that's Frank Drebin. You would think you discovered something that had never been seen before. <laughs> but it, it really is just not good. It's not funny. And did you happen to note who played the computer voice? That was a thing that went through like nine or ten. They recast somebody. They had somebody else at one point. Yeah, it's Broderick Crawford, uncredited. But Broderick Crawford was in The Creature Wasn't Nice. The spaceship, the version we saw, is not Broderick Crawford. It's just one of those things, like, this movie is so profoundly broken, it feels almost unfair to judge. Drew, I just got a phone call from the Guinness Book of World Podcast Records. (laughs) Yes. We just won an award for talking about this film longer than anyone in the history of the fucking (laughs) universe! Bobby Q, The Price is Right music. <laughs> thank you, thank you, everyone. Thank you. This is all that I ever planned. Not only do I think Cindy Williams deserved a better film or television career post Laverne Shirley, but I always had a massive crush on her when I was a kid. Is that wrong? I'm sorry. No, it's, not every, at all. Every, not every, <laughs> everybody got real quiet for a second. I thought I said something wrong. Oh, oh, yo! And speaking of wrong, you know what's wrong? What? Wings Hauser is a good guy. Wings Hauser is Stony Cooper. You don't call him in. Terrific. You turn him loose. I don't carry a badge anymore. And I deliver. Yo, the force is deadly when you're dealing with wings because he's playing Stony. This is what he brings: punching and kicking, punching down doors, <laughs> killing pimps, and slapping their whores. When nothing else will do, deadly force.
Most people will remember Wingshauser as the feral lunatic wild wackadoo from Vice Squad. Yay! Yes, Drew's favorite film of all time. And while I'm not a huge fan of that film, I will contend that he is a force of nature in that movie as the virtually unstoppable <laughs> lunatic. As just like the bad boy cop who's like butting heads with the stereotypes around a cop movie, that there's nothing there. And it illustrates how limited of an actor he is. Sorry, Cole Hauser, your dad's not that great of an actor. My favorite thing about this movie is that the director has the weirdest list of credits for a guy who made Deadly Force with Wings Hauser. He did The Miracle Worker for TV. After this, he does Maxi with Glenn Close. Wow. I am fascinated by how one guy doesn't break his spine from whiplash making movies that radically different. It feels like an early draft for like Death Wish 3 that was deemed too tame and it was tossed in the garbage. And then the guys who produced this said, ooh, this screenplay's good. Yoink. And they stole it out of the garbage and gave it to Wingshauser. I got nothing else to say about Deadly Force. Uh, there is nothing else to say about Deadly Force. Wingshauser is in it. Things happen. Now for a, <laughs> wait. And now for the latest episode of Pitch Meeting. Hey, it's me. I got a screenplay. Uh, You're familiar with porn, right? Uh, I am familiar with porn, actually. All right. Well, you know how in porn you need men and women to do the act, wink, in order for people to enjoy it? Well, I have one of the women who wants to be in a movie where she doesn't have intercourse. It's going to be huge. It's called Angel of Heat. I'm 100% in. Here's all of my money. I got Marilyn Chambers. <laughs> all right, I got this. How about this? Let's pretend I had a time machine and we watched Boogie Nights. You know the movie that Dirk Diggler tries to make to be legit? <laughs> That's Angel of Heat, but without it being funny. Maybe you thought you'd seen all of Marilyn Chambers. Not really. Not until you've seen Angel of Heat. Need a date? My sister's free all next week. The most talked about girl of the 70s. Now in a non-stop action adventure for the 80s. It's one of those movies that you hope when you put it on, at the very least, will be hysterically bad. And it's really not. It's not funny enough to be watchable. It's not really sexy. The softcore stuff is just kind of... Chambers really was not interested in that. It's the Dirk Diggler movie. It is. If you're looking for the film in the Library of Congress, HEAT is an acronym. And what does it stand for in the movie, Scott? I don't know. Here <laughs> equals S and... I got nothing. I think I know where you're going. Ass and titties. Ass and titties. Yeah, it's not uh, it's not good. It's not good. Not at all. I just think that the combination of like spy comedy and softcore porn, it's not a good combination. Well, Andy Sedaris and I will be speaking to you later about that this decade. I will not take any phone calls from Andy Sedaris. <laughs> oh, OK. Now we are going to move on to a film that we have briefly mentioned in previous episodes because it is one of the most environmentally sound films ever made because it recycles so much shit. 
It's time for Space Raiders. Cue the Battle Beyond the Stars theme. Thundering across the galaxy and into legend. The last brave starfighters who become Space Raiders. The action explodes as the fight for freedom races across the universe. Get us out of here! frightened boy, a last-ditch hero and his alien crew, soaring into battle to save the galaxy. Space Raiders, the greatest adventure a kid ever had. Doesn't just recycle score cues, it also recycles special effect shots. Actual special effect shots. Yeah, like... That is literally the spaceship that looks like a frog from Battle Beyond the Stars. Nope, it's here in Space Raiders. I I believe our illustrious colleague Cargill mentioned they also just recycled a lot of the sets. This whole movie is built out of spare parts. And the whole thing is it was a new deal that Corman set up and he had to have product. So this movie was cut together out of spare parts just to satisfy a production deal. And it's shameless. It is Almost shocking to see somebody try to sneak something like this. Yeah, a kid stows away with uh, an ostensibly colorful group of space uh, smugglers, pirates, whatever you want to call it. Raiders. And uh, they wrote the hero in quotes. I don't know if you can hear hear the quotes. The hero just reluctantly decides to take the kid and take him home. And they stop at a space station and really dull, witless shit happens. And I fall asleep. There's one good makeup. There's one alien that I thought was kind of an interesting makeup. And the rest of the movie is useless. Useless. One thing that I've known uh, to cover for our listeners is when you do a Corman production of this era, dig deep into the credits. How about as assistant editor Stephen Herrick, who would go on to give us Critters and Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure? I am all for the idea that Roger Corman's factory turned out everybody in the business. Assistant production designer Rachel Talalay would go on to direct Freddy's Dead. That's important. I think that is the most important thing about the the constant churning through a product by Corman is the people that ended up moving through there. One more. Sure. Credited as a set dresser, John LaFia, who directed, I believe, Charles Play 3. <laughs> you know, so, you know, you got to find the interesting tidbits where you can. Uh, aside from extra residuals in James Horner's pocket, I cannot fathom why you would watch Base Raiders. Drew... It's time for 80s trivia. What are you, you going to choose failed filmmakers or obscure musical acts? Can I pick both? Yes. Who are the Hudson brothers? I believe one of them somehow father Kate Hudson? Yes. Here's what I was able to discern, because I, I want to do some research, but also neither of us ever want to regurgitate frickin' Wikipedia or other articles. The Hudson Brothers had a short-lived variety show in the mid-70s. I used to watch it. Yeah, okay, good, because you're older than me, old-time grandpa. And they had a couple of pop hit singles. Uh, one of the Hudson Brothers was uh, either dating or married, I believe married, to Goldie Hawn and is the father of Kate Hudson. And they were just popular enough via music and and television to warrant one movie. And it is called Hysterical. The most horrifying evil powers in the universe. You talking to me? Have gathered together to destroy civilization. As we don't want to know it. The Hudson Brothers. They're funnier than Abbott and Costello. 
and crazier than the Three Stooges. In fact, they're hysterical. See the motion picture that totally snaps your mind. Hysterical. I, I think this might be the last hurrah, but between what? Student bodies, pandemonium, Saturday the 14th. What are we missing? Thursday the 12th. Yeah, class reunion. And as a guy who loves horror and tries to be funny on occasion, cricket, cricket, <laughs> I love the idea of horror comedy, desperately. I've produced one film in my life, and it is a horror comedy. I hated every fucking frame of this movie, Drew. Like I said, because I'm older than you, I remember watching their Saturday morning show. They had two shows. They had the nighttime adult show, and then they had a Saturday morning kids show, which was crazy that they were considered ever popular enough to warrant two simultaneous TV shows for different audiences. And I remember thinking they were garbage then. You thought they were garbage when you were like eight? I did. They were the show that you waited through for whatever was on the other side. Oh, you're like Hong Kong Fooey is after your mom said, why are you watching this? And you said, Woody Woodpecker's on after. And because I had a sister that if I gave up the TV, she controlled it then for the rest of the day. So I would just sit through the Hudson Brothers like I liked it. One more little bit of trivia also connected to the great Cindy Williams. The same gentleman who was uh, with Goldie Hawn also was with Cindy Williams. So these Hudson boys got around. The three of them star in this. Two of them are bumbling scientists. One of them is a writer. The writer moves into a haunted lighthouse. The scientists are trying to purge the ghost or track the ghost. And I am being generous. I'm being generous in telling you that there's a plot. A wacko. How did we forget fucking wacko? Oh, I know how we forgot wacko. That reminds me the most of this one because it is just, here's an exorcist reference. Oh, here's an omen reference. Here's a floating this. Oh, d mummy. Ha ha ha. Like a lot of times you'll see stuff that's horribly dated humor and you could still see how it was funny at the time. I don't see how this was funny in 1983 at all. No, it wasn't. Very early on, we talked about another one that we just forgot here, The Private Eyes. My thing with The Private Eyes was... Yeah, I like Tim Conway and Don Knotts, but I don't like the 900th iteration of a joke. And these guys, it's like they looked at Catskills comedians from the 30s and went, all right, what were you guys already done with? Because we want to do those jokes. Every joke in this thing is ancient and labored. And they have a guy playing the lunatic who's trying to warn everybody. And it's a running joke that he's constantly getting injured and maimed. Did you recognize that guy? Do you know where else you've seen him? Uh, no. He was Mork's crazy friend, Exodor. Oh, okay. On Mork and Mindy. Yep, yep. There's a lot of familiar faces in this. Richard Keel and Bud Court and fucking Keenan Wynn is in this movie. I don't, I don't knock any of the actors for being in this crap. I knock the people for producing and writing this crap and not trying to make it a little bit funnier. It's awful. We got more awful on the horizon, Drew. Oh, boy. All right. I, I hate to be so fucking negative. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Yeah, it came out a little hot there, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, all right. But we covered it with what? Bugs Bunny Roadrunner movie. And the second one, Looney, Looney, Looney. How many Loonies, Drew? Four. Then the third one was Thousand One Rabbit Feet. Is that what it was? DuckTales? Thousand One Rabbit Tales. And now we are to the fourth in the virtually soulless and hollow Looney Tunes compilation. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to turn it over to Drew for Daffy Duck's Fantastic Island. Look, boss, the plane, the plane. Five planes. 
by train, by boat, any way they can, they're all on their way to see You Know Who, as he stars in his very own primetime special. Oh, no! Oh, yes. So grab a friend and drop in on Daffy Duck and Next. Uh, yeah. I can't watch these <laughs> anymore. I, I can't do it. I can't. <coughs> Pardon. I can't watch another one of these terrible compilation films because in particular, at that moment, they were just shitting on this material. The stuff they do around it offends me. It really offends me. It is so lazy. And it, these I know, all right, obviously these characters, you know, simple chronology dictates that the Looney Tunes weren't of the classic stature in 1983 that they are now, but they were still of a classic stature and you don't mangle your art like this. And so I thought as instead of just Throwing another rant, if you were introducing the Looney Tunes to your children or to a visitor from another planet who's never seen Bugs Bunny or Daffy Duck, would these films at least work as a quick primer on what you're going to get? No, and these are different than the That's Entertainment movies because the That's Entertainment movies, they'll take a sequence – They'll set a context. They'll say, hey, Gene Kelly was really good at what he did. Gene Kelly liked to dance with Sid Charisse. They were really beautiful together. Watch. And then, pow, there you go. What these do is they cut them up and make them spare parts for shitty new cartoons that they build around them. I find the new cartoon so ugly and so unfunny, such a violation of the characters that we love already, that it seems like this is almost counteractive to making somebody want to watch more. I don't want to watch any more of whatever the fuck this is. But Drew, if you are a big Looney Tunes fan, surely you want to see this dime store wraparound in which Daffy Duck and Speedy Gonzalez uh, do a parody of Fantasy Island. Uh, no, no, oh. I'm, I'm oh. cool. Well, I guess you're not a real fan then. I guess uh, more Daffy Duck's Fantastic Island for me then. I'll tell you what. In fact, Scott, I'm going to make you a promise right now. Daffy Duck's Quackbusters is all yours. That uh, That is a compilation too, isn't it? Yeah, it is. See, it's I would coming. rather them do a 68-minute feature of original material that's just not that good than just let's take 30-year-old cartoons, cut them to shreds, surround them with really subpar, Drew, what would you call it in the animation parlance? On the fours? Oh, this is on the tens. This is this is like looking at a series of still pictures that somebody imitates Mel Blanc behind badly. Thankfully, there's only one more of these. But man, Warner Brothers, this is about as bad as you guys ever got. This is ugly. I hate to make the most obvious segue, but you know what else is ugly? Uh, our next movie. Joe Spinell's face. <laughs> Oh, oh jo- sorry to the late Joe Spinell. Joe Spinell. But I, I don't think he, anybody he would ever accuse him of being overtly handsome. Sorry. Well, hell, let's get into it. Let's talk about the last horror film. We got two actors here that I am fascinated by. What I love about Carolyn Monroe is that she was one of the iconic Harryhausen fantasy girls who was drawn she could not have been more perfectly drawn and perfectly realized and i'm not exaggerating always cast sweaty look at any one of the sinbad movies that's literally what her signature is well those are hot those sets were hot they shot those sure but she holds this very iconic place in that film fantasy canon and then i feel like what horror films did and what the 70s stuff like star crash did was 
desperately tried to turn her into something she isn't. And I feel more than anything. Wait, an actor. Uh, yeah, she's not a lead actor. She's not a very good actor, but she did have a good screen presence in B movies when used properly. Charismatic. She is charismatic on film. And it feels like when they made the last horror film, they made two miscalculations. One was they asked her to carry the movie as an actor. And B, the guy who shot the movie is visibly mad at her because it's the worst shot Carolyn Monroe film. And for a movie that has her wall to wall to be photographed this poorly, it's not even that she looks bad. It's that she's photographed poorly. Not to, this doesn't excuse it, but I think it's the nature of the production, which is about a psycho who seems to be stalking actress, a B-movie actress, as played by Carolyn Monroe, across Cannes Film Festival and through various parts of the French countryside uh, in a brief subplot that goes nowhere. It's not scary. The novelty of the film is, do you want to see a film that was like kind of shot guerrilla style during the Cannes Film Festival in 1982? There's, I'll say this, as somebody who's been to Cannes, I find all of the hotel stuff, all of the theater stuff, all of the street stuff fascinating. Just to look at the and go, oh, my God, look at that. There's a theater they go to called the Star Theater. I've been in that theater and watched stuff. And I love seeing what it looked like circa for your eyes only. I am shocked that MGM lets them get away with using the pure eyes only key art as a central set in the movie. Like you see it maybe 100 times. It's got a fairly interesting ending. The ending does at least exhibit some small sliver of creativity. I'll give it that. Can we talk about the guy who made this movie? Because David Winters is a fucking weirdo. And I think this movie is, it's just one of the things that makes him so fascinating. This guy was a choreographer. This guy's in West Side Story. He is a dancer. He's one of the sharks, for God's sake. And his big claim to fame before this was he choreographed stuff like Viva Las Vegas. He choreographed the Tammy show. He choreographed like some of the iconic moments of the 50s and 60s is responsible for the way we think of those eras in some way. He did this live stage production and the actual film directing for Alice Cooper's Welcome to My Nightmare tour. He did the entire thing. He conceived it. He worked on all of it with him. I mean, this guy had some crazy credits coming into this, and then this thing looks like it cost $5 and was made over the course of a weekend and ends with what is essentially the main character turning to the camera and going, I guess I'm a stinker, wink, wink, and then there's a fart sound, and I, I'm baffled by this film. I'm baffled by the guy that made it. I'm baffled by the fact that it exists, and what made him at any point in the career I just described go, oh, I got to take Joe Spinell to can and stalk somebody. Uh, it's time, Drew. We've been looking forward to this for a long time. On a distant planet, a great kingdom was ravaged by beings who came from the future to conquer the universe. Now... The only survivors follow a doubtful seer and a throneless king. Columbia Pictures presents a world apart from anything you have seen before. Crawl. I don't know if I've been looking forward to this, but I've certainly been aware it's coming. It's weird because, you know, when it comes to goofy fantasy movies like this, you'll go, oh, I loved it as a kid, and now I'm a little bit turned down by it. Crawl, I hate to say it, I'm kind of exactly where I was in 1983. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, half of it makes no sense, and it's a little confusing, and even occasionally a little dull. On the other hand, some of the special effects are fantastic, the score is great, and it's got one of those casts where you're like, 
is that Liam Neeson? Sure is. Robbie Coltrane? Like, what do you, what's going on here? It's got major problems, but there's <laughs> there's still a lot I like about this movie. Wait, major problems? You don't say. I've seen the movie at least four times over the course of my life, and I'm not exactly sure of the inciting incident. Uh, the inciting incident is the uh, Beast's castle lands and steals the girl from the wedding. It's your highness, basically. As played by the lovely Lisette Anthony, who I've always been a fan of just for this movie. I Honestly, and she's also in a great movie called Without a Clue that we'll get to later. So I'm watching Krull and I'm like, oh, the web sequence. I remember this. This is really cool. And it still kind of holds up. And then another 15 minutes of what was I thinking? And then there's a good chase or a good battle. And I'm like, yeah, this is what I liked. And the score is good. And there's, oh, that was a good. And then another 15 minutes with where is this going? What am I watching? Before I start talking here, I have to tell my good friend, Aaron Morgan, who's listening right now. Aaron, please fast forward the podcast a few minutes. And uh, the next time I see you, let's just hug and not talk about Krull. I hate this movie. I think there's so many bad choices that it's almost hard to know where to unravel this terrible, terrible, terrible. I'm also friends with Aaron Morgan. So, Aaron, don't tune out and do listen in. Drew, I think you've been mistaken. We're here to talk about the film Krull, not the Atari 2600 video game. Let's start with the bad guys, the the stormtroopers that spend the movie showing up, running away, showing up, running away. Rising out of the water in a very photogenic fashion. They are well-sculpted to look at. Those people never had a day of training in those suits. Those fight scenes are fucking terrible. Terrible. There's scenes in this movie where when you look at the guy in the foreground and you look at any of the fights in the background... They're laughable. They're ridiculous. They don't know how to stand. They then don't know don't where to... don't look at the background. Drew, you just solved the film's problem. If you don't like the background... Well, it's no better in the foreground. The staging of any of those fights, there's not one convincing piece of hand-to-hand combat in the movie. There's not a moment where the swords or any of the weaponry is interestingly used. And the movie spends an entire film building up to the use of a frisbee with knives on it that does Nothing. Nothing. It's magical, and it kills everybody, but it's not interesting. The glaive was not supposed to be the hero of the film. It was his acquisition of said weapon that allowed Prince Colwyn to find his bravery. What is wrong with you? This is a terrible film. It's a poorly staged movie. Beautiful sets are built for this film where nothing happens. I am baffled by choices on this film. I remember reading at the time about the money spent to develop the beast. You build the entire movie to this thing that you're going to finally fight, a thing that they spent a million dollars, million and a half dollars to build, a thing that was underwritten by another corporation because it was so complicated. And when it finally shows up, they have to shoot it through a distortion filter and never actually show the suit because it's just a terrible animatronic sculpture that does nothing. Maybe the original scope of the screenplay was that the beast was supposed to look like a misshapen lava lamp. Maybe you don't know, Drew. You weren't on set. It's a disaster. I find it interesting that we've done now almost 50 episodes, and the film that we've had the biggest disagreement on by far is a film that I once described as Zardoz Jr. I hear people forgive this film its flaws. It is nothing but flaws. And Peter Yates, he's a terrific filmmaker who 
shouldn't have been making this kind of film. And when you read the interviews with him, this is the kind of filmmaking conversation that drives me crazy. I decided I wanted to doodle around and uh, fantasy pond a bit and just get my feet wet and uh, see what it was like and uh, whatever. <laughs> I, you do an amazing Peter Yates impression or it sounds more like Terry Jones doing spam. Yeah, no, it's, that's exactly what he sounds like. Go look at an interview. It's crazy. Um, but no, it's baffling to me that you would make a film, any film, where you're just kind of dabbling in a genre for the sake of it, especially one as expensive and difficult and as, frankly, unfinished as Krull. Like, he knew going into it this thing didn't work on the page and just thought he'd improvise his way through the thing and figure it out as he went. And uh... If Krull is a stew, what are the ingredients? But? No, King Arthur, not but. Okay, well, King Arthur and but... And Star Wars. That's the other thing. Is it's I want to make a medieval movie. I want to make a science fiction movie. Well, we'll, we'll do a little bit of both. <laughs> it's not exactly a good point. It's not exactly medieval. It's and it's it's high fantasy, but then it starts to get into legit sci-fi for a little bit. There, clearly, the beast is from another planet, and it's like it's a sci-fi movie where they even talk about you'll rule the other worlds as well. His teleporting home what is the point of that well it's so that you can't get him it's so that he's always impossible to find and and get we've got to talk about the other thing that drove me crazy in this viewing because i almost couldn't watch it again i stopped and i reached out to bobby because it was like bobby this is going to drive me nuts the theme to this film the james horner score to this film is remember me from coco remember me though i have to say goodbye remember me And it's incessant. They play it over and over. So for the entire film, I'm here. Remember me. Bum, 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 bum. Remember me. I'll throw the glaive and kill you now. But uh, it's. Hey, wait. First off, impressions are your thing. Songs are mine. Second of all, are you technically accusing the most Oscar winning songwriter in the history of cinema of plagiarizing K. Rull? Nope, but it's a horrifying coincidence. And look, I get it. When this movie came out in 1983, fantasy has never been well-respected. And we, we'll talk about this throughout this whole decade. Fantasy is the w most disrespected genre and is almost always treated poorly. And I get it. When you're starving, bologna tastes like steak. But this is an awful movie, and I'm not going to be part of the let's apologize for Krull movement anymore. I'm not apologizing for anything. I think it is a, a very flawed movie, but frequently a very entertaining flawed movie. Remember me. We are now going to move on to a film that I don't think we're going to have a disagreement on because this is a movie like the Sarlacc Pit is a house pet. Ladies and gentlemen, let us get into the cinematic tumor that is staying alive. It's only happened once. The music. The man, the magic, the movie. This is the end. Now it's about to happen again. 
Paramount Pictures presents John Travolta in a Sylvester Stallone film. Staying Alive, The Fever Still Burns, rated PG. You know, whether you're a mother or whether you're a brother, this is a piece of shit. This is the sequel to Saturday Night Fever, one of the biggest hits of the 70s, one of the biggest pop culture juggernauts. When you now have a sequel, you have pretty much a blank check to do whatever you want. We don't need John Badham anymore. Let's, uh, who will direct this? Sylvester Stallone. Is he in it? No, no. We're just going to let him direct it. My favorite thing about the promotional campaign for this film was almost every photo was of Sylvester Stallone directing the movie. And he was always in like pimp jackets, sunglasses, and looked like he had just come from Studio 54. I love that. It's Rocky three where Rocky goes through the I'm real spoiled and he, he like loses touch with his roots and he has to like struggle to like realize what's important. This is that for Stallone and Travolta. This is that era of believing all your own hype. Everything we touch will turn into gold. You thought Krull was difficult to sit through. <laughs> I texted Bobby and said, help me. I just pried my eyeballs out with an ice pick. And he's like, dude, I'm not a doctor. Yep. So yeah, you probably should have called a medical professional. What would you rather watch again right now? Crawler staying alive. Oh, that's not fair. No, no, you answer the fucking question. All right, crawl. Yeah. Thank you. All right, I win this. All right. Why don't why don't you tell us what the plot? That's a terrible afternoon you have planned for me though. No, no, I just wanted an answer. It's a victory. I'll take it. Give us the plot. What is Tony Monero up to, Drew? Well, Tony Monero's a dumbass, and uh, he's kind of trying to be a dancer, and he's kind of trying to have a girlfriend, but he's a dumbass. That's the movie. The implication that you're supposed to instantly like this guy. <laughs> like, no matter what he says or does, he could eat a baby. And you'd be like, hey, look how cool Tony Monero is eating that baby. I hate him. <laughs> I feel, look, I feel bad. This is, this is one of those movies that I can't comprehend that this many adults down the line from the people that had to green light the script, the people that had build sets and costumes and the people that had choreographed the film and the people that came in to hang the fucking lights that nobody at any point looked at anybody else and went, really? Because it's such a stupid concept for a movie. Nobody who walked out of Saturday Night Fever wanted a movie about that guy trying to make it in an awful Broadway musical. Saturday Night Fever is about a guy who is kind of immature and often selfish, but he also aspires to be better. And he aspires to build a talent that he really cares about. And that's why we like Saturday Night Fever, because we want to see him get out, expand his horizons. In this movie, he's won. And now it's, I got a job on Broadway. Everyone watch. Who cares? Saturday Night Fever is not really about getting out. It's about the fact that you're going to live a fairly ordinary life. But on Saturday night on the dance floor, it doesn't matter because you're a fucking star. It's just for that time on the dance floor that it matters. It's the problem that the Rocky sequels have. The original Rocky is just about staying in there and getting the shit kicked out of you and not going down and not giving up. It's not about winning. So is Saturday Night Fever, which is why it's so weird that both of these guys would not understand their original movies to the extent that they would make a movie about how Tony Monero has to become the greatest dancer on Broadway and beat the bitch who's holding him back. Cynthia Rhodes, did she ever get material worthy of what her talent level seemed to be? 
I like Cynthia Rhodes, but I can't off the top of my head think of a good movie she was in. Not really. And I think part of it is that she doesn't pop off the screen. She is a person that you would absolutely want to sit down and talk to and have a conversation. And that's what makes her perfect casting in these movies. But it also makes it hard. This is Hollywood's failure again. You just There comes a point where you don't write for certain types except for little supporting things. It is a baffling film, and it falls into a trap that we see over and over with movies about filmmaking or movies about Broadway. I think there's a lot of movies about Broadway that are like this, where the Broadway show that they're putting on is such a fucking shit fire that there's no way adults would sit in a theater for it, much less applaud it. I am not a Broadway aficionado, but I can imagine someone who's seen 10 or 12 Broadway plays watching this movie and going, what? (laughs) <laughs> Satan's Alley, the uh, production that they're putting together. And really, that's all that happens in the thing is he gets cast in a Broadway thing. The main dancer's not that good. He gets his shot, and then he's really good. And that's all that happens. Nothing gets in his way. Nothing's really difficult. Oh, also, wait, but Kurtwood Smith is there. <sighs> for 10 seconds. Yeah. I Well, you know what? If I'm drowning in shit, I'm going to look for a small. I loved seeing him. And I was hoping because I didn't remember the movie. I was hoping there was more of him. I'm a big fan of what are called bad movie podcasts. And these hosts generally will trash stuff like we will, but are also very respectful of filmmakers and their intentions. I would love any of those bad movie podcasts to tackle this one because it has some of the most laughable dance sequences you will ever see. I mean, like Elaine Bennis, funny dancing. Yeah, there's a great how did this get made on this one, and uh, it is uh, well worth your time to track down. You should see the movie before you see it, simply so you'll understand what they're talking about, but it's a trash fire. Only Sylvester Stallone could have rolled through this thing unscathed somehow. I didn't mean to necessarily denigrate his talents as a director because he has written and directed well in the past. But I just can't help but think that him being hired for this was pure marketing because arguably the worst thing he's ever worked on. Well, he said, and if you ever get a chance, ask him to his face about this movie and watch him. It's always entertaining. There's a pain first and then an acknowledgement. Oh, yeah, I know it's that bad. I speak into that bad, Drew. I think I have to pull you away from staying alive, which you love more than Krull. But it's time for us to dig into a sequel to a sequel to a classic, which means it's got to be good. It's time to visit SeaWorld in Jaws 3D. In 1975, he became Hollywood's biggest star. And in 1978, just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water, he resurfaced. This summer, for the first time, the terror of Jaws will not stop at the edge of the screen. The all-new Jaws 3D, rated PG. Now playing at a theater near you. Hey, Mom! Mom, can we go to the movies tonight? Oh, yeah. All right, it's a shark, and it's loose at SeaWorld, and it's gonna chase Bess Armstrong. (laughs) Leia Thompson... Simon McCorkendale, Dennis Quaid, and Louis Gossett Jr. Wait, Simon McCorkendale? Shit, yeah! All right, I'm going to cut through the, the all the <laughs> basic obvious stuff, and then I'm going to unleash Drew. Jaws 3D, I can't fathom, I mean, we just covered Superman 3, but I can't fathom a second sequel falling from the classic level of, the, of its original. Shark is loose in SeaWorld, it's shot in 3D, everything that's not an actor looks like balsa wood. It's astonishing, like you said about the other film, that people who work at Universal 
looked at this with memories of Jaws and even the decent Jaws 2 in their head and went, yeah, we can release this. Little sidebar, what did this film start as and almost become? It's interesting because this month is uh, ground zero for a guy we're going to be talking about a lot this decade. And uh, this is the first, almost the first of the three films. But we are going to mention John Hughes because John Hughes wrote a script called Jaws 3, People Zero, that Joe Dante was going to direct and National Lampoon was going to produce. Zanuck and Brown thought it was a great idea. This was a chance to pretty much put a stake in the heart of what was considered an embarrassing series at that point. They brought in Matty Simmons, they hired John Hughes, and they created a movie that was about the making of Jaws 3 as a shark begins to eat and kill people on the set. Maybe it's a shark, maybe somebody's trying to stop the production, but it is an attack on the entire idea of making sequels, complete with an opening scene where Steven Spielberg quits. It is... A very funny script if Joe Dante had shot it and they had kept the momentum going on this thing because it was moving very quickly. I think there's a chance this could have been really the the right way to go and then just say goodbye to Jaws permanently. Or we'd be having this exact same podcast and we'd be talking about how Jaws 1 is brilliant, Jaws 2 is pretty solid, and Jaws 3 people zero. What the F were they thinking? Those (laughs) morons. Boy, they burned it down. They killed the whole franchise, and I can't believe Jaws 4 is in outer space. What? I think it makes sense that Jaws is the first real summer movie because the Jaws franchise is the first violently mismanaged summer franchise. All right, but Drew, the most interesting question, what is it that sank that angle? Just at the end, Universal was loath to make a movie that would then make it impossible for them to ever make another. And they really felt like if they did that, that's the Abbott and Costello moment. Oh, how naive is that? That you couldn't possibly come back from a, se- a comedy. Well, look, like I said, nobody had done this before. Nobody had managed a giant franchise like this. And there was such a disaster behind the scenes on Jaws 2. I think they were really nervous going into this one. And that's a really bold left turn for a series to just say, all right, let's start making fun of ourselves. In theory, the log line, uh, a shark is loose in SeaWorld, Sounds potentially entertaining. That could work. Here's my question. Here's my first big question. Why do the Brodies have to be involved? I don't know, because they, they're still following those re- arcane, ridiculous sequel rules that you just laid down. And that's the dumbest thing about this film is the Brodies should have been factored out. Just the shark is the franchise. No, you could just see the meeting in Universal in 1982 where they're like, we don't need any of these boys to be the Brody characters. <laughs> you know, it's, it's fine. And then somebody in the back of the boardroom went, well, then the audience is going to be like, why is this a sequel? Who, what, what characters are we following? The shark? Yes. <laughs> yes. 100% yes, the shark. That's it. That's the only thing that matters. One thing that we always read growing up in the interviews, and you you know, I, I bet it's mostly true. I don't know if it's always true, but I bet it's mostly true, is that a lot of times these sequels were always given a smaller budget and expected to do better than the first one. And you could see that in Jaws 3. Forget that it's a terrible screenplay and the movie looks like it was shot through muddy pantyhose. Everything in it, it looks like it was shot in like three hallways. Everything underwater looks horrible. It just, I'm glad that most of this cast went on to better things because I like most of them, especially our former guest, Leia Thompson. Hi, Leia. But this is terrible. Yeah, it's pretty bad. And the, uh, Banter back and forth between Dennis Quaid and Bess Armstrong is irritating at best. What what happens when the shark finally comes out and reveals itself? And that's one of the dumbest things I've ever seen at the end of a giant movie. Like when we covered it came from Hollywood. And when we were younger, we would watch old monster movies and be like, 
oh, look how cheap that monster looks, but movie's still kind of fun. Now you look back at 1983 and you look at Jaws 3 and you're like, that shark looks ridiculous and it's not any fun. Yeah, it's not fun at all. Part of it is that ugly 3D process that was, you know, part of the resurgence in the 80s. None of that stuff has aged well. I believe that was called the muddy pantyhose process. It was, and it does not age well. None of it is transferred to video well. All of it looks weird and blurry and only half the frame. And yeah, it's a nightmare, man. If this didn't prove to Universal... And the universe. ...that Jaws was dead in the water, pardon me, then they deserve what happened to them next. And somehow, and again, this has weird parallels to the Superman series, somehow, maybe, part four is even worse. Hey, Scott, this next one, I first heard about this from my friend's older brother. And friend's older brothers, I noticed in the 80s, at least for me, were always a source of fascinating information. Bad advice. Bad advice, fascinating information, and... And old playboys. And old playboys. And this was kind of the combination of all those moments, because my friend's older brother punched a door open, stepped in and said, guys, we're going to the mall, we're going to see that movie, the one about the dude who fucks his mom's friend. For real! It's called class! The good news is that Jonathan is having his first affair. How old is she? Mid-30s. The bad news is... Jonathan, this is my mom. He's having it with his roommate's mother. Jonathan, evidently you and I have something in common. Class. (laughs) The story of a friendship that's in a class by itself. Class rated R. How the fucking hell did the producers of The Graduate not sue these people? Uh, yeah, I can see that. I mean, the entire thing hinges upon the whole, you're trying to seduce me. Jacqueline Bissett plays Rob Lowe's mother, and Andrew McCarthy has carnal relations with her. And the movie doesn't even, like, follow through with it. There's not even, like, a a cathartic moment where they deal with it in a proper way. This movie treats her terribly. This movie is flat out cruel to Jacqueline Bissett. The character is an empty vessel nothing to it yeah she's a fantasy who shows up hard drinking in a bar by herself takes home a younger guy has sex with him of course it turns out it's the roommate of her son at prep school instead of dealing with that in any honest way the film eventually just shuffles her off to i believe a mental hospital off screen i don't get how the guy who directed the great santini this was his follow-up because i i have to think this at one point was a more mature comedy, and then literally halfway through production, some studio executive flew in and said, we just saw the returns of box office numbers for all these sex comedies. This is now 40% more sex farce and 40% less class comedy. Yeah, and because it's Orion, and I've got to imagine that Porky's, when Porky set everything on fire, Porky's probably created this weird gravity where everything suddenly had to be dirtier and raunchier. And, and you look at this film, like, it's clearly, it was produced as a real movie, and it looks good. Like, it's a well-produced film. It's a handsomely made movie. I mean, it's got an Elmer Bernstein score, for God's sake. Yeah, the score is great. Uh, we just talked about Jim Koof and uh, or Kauf. I'm not pretty sure. Kauf, yeah, we covered him in The Boogins, Wacko, and Utilities. Yeah, we just talked about Utilities, which he co-wrote with David Greenwald, who is his co-writer here. He will improve. He will c- turn out some much better films than Class. It does have some very interesting, very young faces. You won't have to pay attention to Class very long to catch a young John Cusack. Alan Ruck, Virginia Madsen. 
Casey Shemasco. And I don't think there's one person of color in this movie. No. Oh, God, no. It's set at a prep school. There's stuff in this movie that is not bad. The prep school stuff, the prank stuff. There's a fairly elaborate plank Andrew McCarthy plays on Rob Lowe to pay him back for a prank he plays on him. There's stuff that's fine as far as, far as that stuff goes, but it feels like there might have been a movie here. The title of the film and the setting of the film, and then at the very beginning, Andrew McCarthy kind of making it clear that he comes from a very blue-collar background, that this is not his world. That sets up a comedy that is more about being next to money and not having money. And either way, whichever way they had gone, it's not really very funny. There's very little in here that's ha-ha funny. And it gets maudlin and mawkish, which also leads me to believe that at one point it was slightly more meatier than it is now. This was at a point where comedies had to have that third act shifting gears and get more heartfelt. And we're going to see a big example of that a little bit later in this this podcast. I do think class is a case of probably four or five different influences pushing on something that probably got obscured completely by the end. Let's move on to a very good film, one of the best films of Woody Allen's fantastic 80s, frankly, and we're going to have to uh, come come to terms with that. While I personally uh, do not consider myself a Woody Allen fan anymore, the simple fact of the matter is I believe he made some great films in the 1980s, and Zelig is one of them. We're getting into a run now that it's pretty remarkable, and I think Zelig is one of those films that not only holds up technically, but if anything, has become somewhat prescient about the way celebrity bends human beings. It was completely different for him. Woody Allen had done mostly romantic films and a few dramas and comedies uh, and broad comedies, but this was a unique concept. It was the idea that uh, a certain person would insinuate himself throughout history and, and appear in all these different places, kind of like Forrest Gump many years later, but on a much more interesting and compelling scale. And it's fascinating to look at how he did it here uh, because it's all painstakingly pieced together by Gordon Willis and Woody Allen, and it's almost flawless. There's a couple of them that aren't perfect now, but for the most part, my God. Yeah, I'm, I'm watching the movie and I'm thinking, all right, well, you know, I have my baggage about Woody Allen, which he deserves, and I also remember loving this movie, and I'm going to sit here and reconcile those two thoughts, and I came away still of both minds on both topics. I still... I'm fed up with the man, but I still think this film is fascinating. Maybe one of his best films ever. It's got a lot to say about the way we try to please other people and how easy that is to do and how I think as society gets louder and as social media gets louder and as all these things sort of push on us, Zelig to me seems even sadder now than it did then. And the and the idea that there's a lot of people who are Zelig. There's a lot of people who are just, they are blown by the wind and they are what they are in a moment and they are not grounded people. And I think it's easier to be that as time presses on. I think it's a beautiful movie in some ways. I think the, the use of the very straight mockumentary form and not playing it as a joke, even though there's a lot of great punchlines in it. That, that is the key. If he had done it in the style of sleeper or take the money and run, I don't think it would be, it'd be funny, but I don't think it'd be nearly as memorable or, or interesting. And it's done uh, in a very dry, matter-of-fact type of humor. And I think for this movie, it works wonderfully. I also think there's something remarkably honest about this as if you are looking to solve the puzzle that is Woody Allen, the confounding, upsetting, difficult puzzle that is Woody Allen, I do think there's something to this movie about the way he is not much of a person 
by himself. It is only when he is around others and transformed by them that he becomes something. There's a reason this guy makes a movie a year. I heard somebody talk about it recently, and I I think they nailed it, which is that's somebody who doesn't ever want to be alone with themselves. That pace is, if you've ever made a movie, that pace is unbelievable. A film a year for 35 years is that becomes your whole world. And I think it's going to be one of those things where he when he stops making movies, he will stop existing. This next guy, uh, I'm excited because this month kind of marks a coming out party for uh, John Hughes as a screenwriter. Jaws Three People Zero almost happened. These next two films back to back were both produced works by him and I think did a really nice job of setting him up for the decade he was going to have. First up, Mr. Mom. Ever since Jack Good luck. and his wife switched careers, he's seeing a new angle on life. What? She's going to blame it on you now. You threw me at him. A new angle on love. Did I tell you? And a new angle on the neighbors. Are these any good? Yeah, plenty. Michael Keaton and Terry Garr in Mr. Mom. A mother of a comedy. Rated PG. This is a feature-length sitcom, but it's well-written, well-cast, it never wants to be anything more than a sitcom. It accomplishes all of its goals. I think it's a very uh, pleasant, affable, well-cast, funny, domestic comedy. I smile when I watch it. I rarely laugh out loud. And I remember as a little kid thinking it was hilarious and the funniest movie I'd ever seen. And when I was getting ready to rewatch it for the show, I asked the boys if they wanted to watch it. So we put it on one night. Not a lot of laughter. Did your boys find it strange that it was supposed to be funny that the dad was taking care of the children? They did both comment on the fact that uh, it's ridiculous because I have spent so much time raising them. and Even in 1983, though. There were whiskers on that concept, yeah. Right. Would a dad be so clueless as to dry his baby's ass in a hand dryer? I mean, like... Well, I'm not, I'm not fond of the way Hollywood treats dads. Dads are... I know, I am the ruling class bitching about the way I'm treated in movies. But I don't much like the movies where dad's incompetent, dad's stupid, and dad works too hard and has a job and pays bills. One thing I hate about three men and a baby, grown men are afraid of babies. That one bugs me. Men become blithering idiots. Yeah, and in general, I I think the the movie's very broad. It leans on really broad jokes. What I like is that Terry Gar having to deal with a an asshole boss. Terry Gar handles it well, and I like the way that subplot ultimately plays out. I think it nails in the end what it needs to for it not to be gross. The way that's handled is is smart. I forgot Angelian existed until this movie. As I was watching it, and she popped up, and I went, oh, shit, and Jillian. Yeah, that's a thing. I remember her. Yeah, she's good in this. So is Jeffrey Tambor. So is Christopher Lloyd. Well, Christopher Lloyd, I mean, for the four seconds, some of these some of these people race by in this film. But no, no, I could see a 15-year-old watching this movie now and thinking, 1983 seems like seems old, but how was this movie not made in 1953? And uh, Toshi, it was funny. He got really upset at both Martin Mull and Ann Jillian in the film. He thought they were both douchebags. He got outraged when she would come over to the house. He'd be like, stay away. (laughs) Children of divorce learn things, man. They learn things. They know what's up. Cheating is evil, and children should learn that. That's good. Uh, But yeah, Mr. Mom holds up every bit as lightweight, amiable uh, sitcom. Uh, Michael Keaton, you can see how this turned him into a superstar because he's just effortlessly like this this is the one-two punch with night shift this is where people decided michael keaton was the the real deal like he could make anything funny now scott the mild-mannered amiability of mr mom 
that's that's fine. But for me, there is nothing quite like the jet black, mean spirited, nasty sensibility of National Lampoon's Vacation. summer when you think vacation think national lampoon's vacation see the real america hey underpants hey yellow it's friendly okay i'm okay don't you want to look at the grand canyon it's educational and most of all it's fun on the picnic basket. Let Chevy Chase, Beverly D'Angelo, Imogene Coca, Randy Quay, John Candy, and Christy Brinkley. Well, are you going to go for it? This is crazy, this is crazy, this is crazy. Take you for a ride. This summer, when you think vacation, think National Lampoon's Vacation. Better check under the hood. This was a huge favorite among me and my friends when we were kids. I think we probably rented it eight times, nine. I mean, it was legitimately funny. It had Chevy Chase. It also had young people being funny. It had some boobs. It had some raunchy stuff we weren't supposed to watch. It had some action. It had some uh, mean jokes that we didn't get much as a kid. Some of the uglier jokes maybe feel a bit dated and a bit out of place. But there's a lot of gags that still nail it. And what a fun cast. I know a lot of people would prefer Christmas Vacation. It's always going to be vacation for me. First of all, I love the John Hughes story that it's based on. And the John Hughes story that was in National Lampoon was them going to Disneyland. So they called it Disneyland. They addressed it head on. In this movie, clearly, they modify it just a little bit in pretty much every other way. They get the jet black nature of what John Hughes wrote right. Clark Griswold is Job. I feel for Clark Griswold. He is every father who has ever wanted to do well by his family, who life fucks over and over and over, and all he wants is to give his family a good time. I Clark in this movie breaks my heart. I love him. I feel for him. I am him. Counterpoint. Could it be? That Clark, he is just a result of being forced this Americana stuff. And in fact, he's borderline sociopathic who refuses to acknowledge what his family really wants. They don't want to go on a road trip. They would be like, why are you forcing this? Why can't you be a little more flexible? It's both. And that's what's beautiful about the writing in this. It's both. Clark Griswold is a victim in this movie. Absolutely a victim of his own good intentions. And his good intentions have no interest in anybody else's wants. That doesn't make him a bad person. It's simply, it's part of Clark. Clark is working so hard to give them what he has in his head, this picture of the perfect American vacation. And you're right. I think what John Hughes was saying is that that vacation that we were sold in a car with our family, driving coast to coast, stopping at all the places along the way, is fucking horrifying. And you don't want to do that. Fly where you're going. Enjoy the thing you want to go do. And don't kill each other. It nails the dysfunctional but loving family dynamic. It nails the 
the absurdity of what goes on on a family vacation counterpoint with, like you said, uh, Drew's nostalgic wish for just a fun, friendly family vacation. Even though he is being selfish in a lot of ways, his intention is to bring his family together and have fun with them. So, you know, uh, even though he's obtuse in so many ways, his ultimate goal is admirable, except when he tries to cheat on his wife while she's sleeping in the motel room. He, he never really tries. Watch, watch again. No, but he's in a pool with the naked Christy Brinkley, dude. What are you doing? That that scene is uh, Clark's whole thing with her is as preposterous and self-deflating as it can be. Here's my issue with that subplot. It doesn't really go anywhere. Interesting. I think the scene in the pool would have played better. He jumps in the pool and now he thinks he's in a fantasy, but he's not. Boom, there's the joke. But the, the ending of the joke is his wife looks down. She's really upset. Beautiful girl swims away. And that's it. Yeah, I don't think Clark was ever going to do anything. I think that is that is Clark acting out because he's upset. All right, let's play word association. I'll throw some things out at you and you just tell me your reactions. Cousin Eddie. Uh, genius. It's one of the great comic character performances of the 80s. Randy Quaid in this movie is definingly great. Cousin Eddie is disgusting he makes my skin crawl i'm afraid to touch him uh, you know and i was a kid i didn't like the character and as i got older i went oh got it every family has that uncle we don't really like to deal with and no he is nowhere near this bad but this cousin is the ultimate disgusting black sheep you don't want to deal with i love his performance deeply and i think his entire family is disturbing what a great idea to get miriam flynn with most movies you'd get like somebody who looks like hot young trash you know like a punker no miriam flynn is just looks as sweet as the lady next door and that's what makes it funny jane krakowski oh my god as the daughter both she and john p navin get one great bring the house down punchline that made them memorable i mean cousin dale got quoted at camp for the next seven summers by every kid who was getting there for the first time as a joke ha ha jane krakowski hilarious and filthy that joke is upsetting so wrong though both of those jokes are so gross but the both actors sell them and yeah we just covered john p navin in in uh, losing it and here he another scene stealer Beverly D'Angelo. Adorable. She is so wonderful with Clark and so tolerant of Clark. Within five minutes, you're like, yep, she's been married to him for 20 years. Yep. She gets the good heart, and she also understands there's a black cloud that follows him around, and she loves him despite all that, and I think they are terrific together. The casting on the kids, let's go through both of the kids. Dana Barron, terrific. I love the arc of her and the sunglasses as she gets cool after uh, hanging out with Cousin Vicky. I think she's very funny. I think she nails every punchline she has in the movie. She has one problem, which is she's eclipsed by the blinding sun sitting next to her in the backseat. Anthony Michael Hall as Rusty. Jesus Christ. Talk about a kid who gives a fully formed adult comic performance. Nuanced, funny. His timing is impeccable with Chase. He crushes everything they ask him to do. I've got to imagine on the set, Harold Ramis must have just been like, I can't believe that's a kid. I can't believe what I'm getting from him. Imogene Coca. John Candy. Yes. Eugene Levy. James Keach. Frank McRae. I, I, here's my question, Drew. 
Would you watch this with the boys, or is it too too adult? We've already done it. Oh, oh, they love this movie. Yeah, I loved. I I passed this movie along happily, and it does feel like it's a little much in places, and that's part of the fun of it. I will never forget sitting in a theater the first time a cut to Aunt Edna on the roof. I couldn't believe a film would do a joke like that. I couldn't believe that adults were laughing around me. I was gasping with laughter. I think we both have a love-hate <laughs> relationship with Chevy Chase. Sometimes we hate the guy and sometimes we love the guy. And let's give it up to movies like uh, Caddyshack, Fletch, and this that really did find a way to rein his talents. And he showed up. In Fletch, he's the wise-ass. Here, he's the amiable buffoon. Those are pretty much the two gears that Chevy Chase is really good at. And he is fantastic as the amiable buffoon in this movie. Yeah, that's that's what I love is I think the Chevy performance ultimately holds everything together for me. And, you know, Harold Ramis took a lot of shit on the uh, making of Caddyshack. And Caddyshack took a long time to become what Caddyshack is now, which is beloved and and respected. Um, Caddyshack was kind of a disaster and it got its ass kicked that summer. I know Doug Kenny walked out of a screening of Airplane just pale saying, well, that's the future. I'm done. I'm out of this business now. Vacation is Harold Ramis reclaiming his career and saying, no, 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 I know what I'm doing. And this thing is so confident all the way through and has such control. And you're right, Holiday Road, an amazing theme song. I can't get enough of it. Great poster for this movie by Boris Vallejo. On every front, I love National Lampoon's Vacation. So that is July of 1983. We started out with a bunch of crap. But we ended up with some pretty good movies in the long run. And that's pretty much the message of 80s all over. Believe in yourself and the spaceship will come and rescue you and bring you back home. Guys, next month is going to be, oh my God, it's August of 1983, which means it is the doldrums, the end of summer, the absolute butthole of the weirdest year we're going to cover. We have maybe the worst of the 3D movies, another terrible fantasy sword and sorcery movie. We have star vehicles that don't work. And... We have the Citizen Kane of teen sex comedies. I can't wait for August 1983. Uh. If Krull is a stew, what are the ingredients? Butt? No, King Arthur, not butt. 